0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. This is a bonus. This is not part of my message. Um, I want to give a little bit of plug here. You know what the Great Commission is, right? Go into all the world. Um, Matthew 28, 19, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Interesting grammatical structure there is Go is not an imperative. It is a participle, present participle, meaning this. When Jesus said this to the disciples, it was already a given that they would be going. The command, the imperative was make disciples. And I thought about sitting in one of the classrooms uh, an hour ago and what was going on in the sanctuary and in different parts of the building That hour is probably one of the best teaching moments we have all week long. Now, Life Groups is going to be a concentrated study. I'm I'm eager uh, to get our group going with uh, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. Not that I understand it all, but I'm trying to understand some of it. So uh, there's merit to that, but uh, looking forward to that. Last week, um, by the way, it's, it's good to see Josh here today. Uh, what's it, nine days since his motorcycle accident, when your motorcycle fails on you going plus 50 miles an hour and uh, you walk away from it with no broken bones, no serious injuries, and you're in church, well, that that really is just, this is a side note. I mean, he he was here the next day doing Kai Alpha stuff. I just, there's just some things that's not explainable, this is nothing short that God did something that day when that accident was happening. And uh, some of you may not uh, know all the details, but the first two people to him are believers. Were believers. One of them was a nurse, and the young man behind him in a truck works at Best Buy. When I was talking to him, and, and uh, the odd thing is, I was about eight vehicles behind it. I didn't know it was uh, Josh in the accident. I I pulled over to help to get the motorcycle out of the road out of McFarland Boulevard when I saw it was him. But I was talking to this young man, and he said, when he saw that accident in action, he yelled out, Jesus, help him. And I think Josh, about the third flip, was saying the same thing. (laughs) It, It took him a couple of flips to realize, this is not good. I am wrecking on my motorcycle. Jesus, help me. And I, I just, there's no other explanation than, can we just give God some praise this morning? I'm really eager to share this message. Uh, Karen preached about half of it in her classroom, and I was like, I leaned over to Brenda and I says, this is something else. But uh, uh, last week was One Radical Life, and I thought, what a, I, I, I love connecting messages Um and I thought, well, how do we follow up with that? Because I really felt like that that was something God really gave me. And, and, and can I tell you, I just think that if he lived a radical life, the people connected to him ought to be living some kind of a radical life too, right? So I thought, well, what a better way to follow up than to discern where we are in our relationship with that one radical life that Jesus lived. Many missionaries will come from off the field on furlough. Tom and Martin McLean said this same thing when they came from Senegal, Africa, and they actually lived in the rental house that we have next to the church here for a while. And one of the things they said is that when they come back to the U.S. after a little while, it's, um, it's disheartening to see the American church. And they see such a contrast between people, they lead the Lord in a Muslim uh, stronghold and how they live out their faith, and they come here and they just see a just a casualness toward faith and and uh, not not the kind of level of dedication and it, and it's troubling and we are in western civilization here we are in the the most prosperous, the most free, the most um, advantageous country, the most potential. Uh, You just go, the most prominent nation on the planet, and yet we tend to be nominal in our Christianity than normal. And that's what I've entitled this message is, Nominal or Normal. Now, here's what I mean by nominal. I want to put a slide up here. This is the Luzon um, Committee for World Evangelization. This is a group that's... uh, uh, can you clean my glasses for me real quick? This is, this is frustrating. Very few things distract me, but uh, somebody's got some lens cleaner there. Anybody got some lens cleaner? I, I'm, I'm seeing streaks when I look at it. It's just too, it's bothering me too much. Do you lick them? No, is that, you got you to do something. That tissue's not going to get it. Wait a minute. Time out, time out, well, time out. Time um, out. Here, she, there, there, she's got it. I'm sorry. This was just driving me crazy. So, I said, I'm not going to preach with streaks in front of me the whole time. I think that's hamburger grease that's still on my glasses. We had to do. We had to suffer for Kyle. For, anything would be better there, dear. So, bet somewhat better. Uh, this, is, this is what I wanted to show you. What is nominal Christianity? And uh, this is a group closely associated with Billy Graham Association. It says, a person who has not responded in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ as his personal Savior and Lord. So what is your response to that? What do you think when you read that? What did you say? Well, I, I don't think they're a Christian. But they think they are, and you said perception is reality, right, Karen? <laughs> but they, they think they are, and says, how does that happen? Well, let me put up a different slide, and this is kind of going to uh, define it a little bit more on this slide. Nominal Christians may attend church and Christian functions. They self-identify themselves as Christians, but it's just a label. Nominal means name only. That's what the basic word nominally, just a name only. Uh, I was sharing this with someone before Sunday school, and they says, oh, there's a lot of people in the South like that. I said, yes, there is. Uh, they view religion primarily as a social construct. They just have a good time hanging out with people. Uh, they do not allow it to require much of them in terms of morality, responsibility, and I really like this last statement. This is a quote from a, a website that researches this nominalists take a minimalist approach to their faith. In other words, just get by. Just do the minimum. And notice that that word minimalist. I think that's, and and why are people like this? This is a good question for us to consider. Uh, One thing is that this is much easier to do because it doesn't require anything of you you can pretty much live your life the way and just sporadically come to church and sporadically maybe reference the Bible, but there's just no day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month relationship with Jesus. But they call themselves Christians. Either they were baptized in the church or they're, they've they always been connected to the church. They're third-generational people in the church, and you just think oh, they're grandfathered in. They're just... Uh, Louis Palau, I like what he said years ago. He says, God has no grandchildren. You can't be birthed in the kingdom of God as a grandchild. There's only children of God born again. And I, I, I hear people say, a born again Christian. And I thought, well, that, that's kind of like a uh, either you're born again or you're not born again. And to be a believer, you have to be born again. This is a third slide I'm going to put up. This is what the title of the message could be, is nominal Christianity versus normal Christianity. Now think about how Jesus engaged people in his life and ministry. Someone asked me at the primetimers yesterday why I thought that maybe Jesus only ministered for three, three and a half years. I don't, I don't know if there's an answer to that. I said, everybody might have an opinion. I said, look, look how hard the disciples took the news that he was leaving them after only three and a half years. If he went five or ten, they would really have a problem. But he, he squeezed in his mission, and the success of his mission was to seek out and save the lost. Now, what kind of people did Jesus have the most success with in his ministry? very lost people, people who had demons in them, people who had problems, people who were devastated by life, the lower spectrum of people in society, the outcasts, he, they gravitated to him, the blind, you, you give it, you just name the people who had so many problems, they would come to him, they were seeking him out. And he came for those people. What people gave him the most grief? religious leader, and here I want to say nominal Jews. Name only. They had a lot of religion but no relationship with God. He so says, how do you know that? Because Jesus told them that. He said, if you knew God, if you knew the God that I'm talking about, you would not want to kill me because I came from him. It's evidence that you don't know him because you don't recognize me. You don't recognize that I came from him. And they took offense to that. But he was speaking to nominal people who thought they were okay because they kept the rules and they were in charge of the Torah and, and they were the synagogue rulers. They were the Sanhedrin leadership. They had all of the bells and whistles, all the titles, but they did not have a relationship with God. How else could you look at some of the stunning things that took place in the life of Jesus? Now, if you're waiting for a couple of, for a passage of scripture, hang on, I'm about to get to it. I'm just gonna give you a heads up here. But you think about the high priest, think about that term, the high priest, the one who is at the top level of taking care of temple ministry. He was the one that gave bribes to liars that gave the order to arrest Jesus, the order to rough him up, the order to take him to the Roman governor and demand for the Roman governor to kill him, to execute him. They were okay with torture. They were okay with bribery. They were okay with lying. They were okay with all of the stuff they did to kill him. But every Sabbath, they were... There with the Torah and the Ten Commandments, it said, Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. All of these commandments was right there. Every Saturday, they were in Sabbath, held in the Word of God, and yet they had no relationship with God. They were nominalist Jews. And Jesus struck a blow to that mentality because he did not come to seek and to save those who thought they were okay, but those who were desperate for help. He came to seek and save the lost. Remember the ruler of the synagogue who came to him, A ruler of the synagogue. Not all priests was bad. Look at Zechariah, you know, he and Elizabeth. He was a godly priest. He was praying. They were praying. God appeared to them says, I'm going to give you a child, and that was John the Baptist. He was a priest that took his, his responsibility seriously. He wasn't like the others. The synagogue ruler that came to Jesus and his daughter had died, and he says, you know, come, come to my house. You can raise her from the dead. And, and Jesus did that. There was people that were not like that. Not everybody's in the same category. And yet Jesus, Jesus came to bring healing and relief to those who were really desperate. You think about Nicodemus coming Coming to Jesus in the middle of the night. Why did he do that? Because there was pressure on people in the Sanhedrin not to be associated with Jesus. So they were having to do covert meetings with Jesus. Nicodemus, we know, came to faith following that meeting. We don't know whether it was that night while he was talking to Jesus in John chapter 3. We also know that he and Joseph of Arimathea were both believers that when Jesus died on the cross... Joseph had a tomb no one had ever used, and he went to Pilate and says, can, can we take care of the body of Jesus of Nazareth? And they made sure that Jesus was dead, and he says, if he's dead, you can have at it. And they buried, along with the ladies that helped put the spices on the corpse of Jesus, and yet secretly they had been believers, but now they came out openly, and I wondered what happened to them. They probably had a pink slip on their, their door. <laughs> we hereby kick you out of the Sanhedrin, by the way. But this, is, this is, shows you that people who were desperate for truth gravitated to Jesus. Now, here's the two verses I'm going to give you. I, I can go on and on about nominal Christianity, and I'm going to touch on some questions in just a moment. But here's two verses about what normal Christianity is all about. This is the first one, Galatians 2.20. This is Paul writing, and this is a great, great chapter. If you read it from the start about him going to Jerusalem and meeting with people that still wasn't sure about his genuineness. And he gets down to his own life, and this is what he says in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, this body, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm going to touch on that verse a little bit more later. But go to the next slide. The next verse is Second Corinthians five seventeen. Great passage. This is normal Christianity, by the way. Here we go. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... What? He is a new creation, a new creature. Old things are passed away. There's there's something that's happened there, right? The old is gone. He said, "Well, pastor, what if people have trouble with some of that old?" I'm going to tell you they're going to be always in a movement toward new. They're not going to camp in the old. doesn't mean that you radically just have everything changed in your life, but there's a change. Anyone who's in Christ, the old things have gone. Behold, all things have become new. This is normal Christianity. Now, when you read those two passages, if you say this, yeah, yeah, I've read that, I got it. Do you know you just qualified yourself for the possibility of being a nominal Christian? Because those two passages cannot be read, yeah, yeah, I read that, I got it. You can't read them like that. You can't just kind of like, oh, that's such a beautiful passage. I think I'll put that on Facebook. I think I'll put it on Twitter. But when you read that, it's like, I've been there. I've experienced that. Let's go back and look just for a moment at what I mean about Nominalism this just name only i'm going to ask you five questions here and and I want you to gauge I could go on and on with these questions, but he said these are these are are elementary no they 're not first first question is this do you love God? Do you love God? This goes back to the ten commandments, the great commandments when jesus was saying was asked. What is the greatest commandment? He says, well, the first is this, that you would love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and body. And the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. What he just did was take 10 commandments and made them into two. And he even took more than that. He says, on these two commandments, hold and hang the whole law, the whole Torah. And he says, what God is trying to communicate to you through the law is to love him, to love him with everything within you, this This is normal Christianity. But when we ask people, do you love God? Yeah, what part does Jesus have in your life? Well, you know, he's a part of my life. I mean, do you adore the Lord? There's a part of one of the choruses, Jesus, we love you. Oh, how we love you. You know, I'm thinking about, I, I thought back to that moment in Childersburg, Alabama, and I thought, how could a kid have such a dramatic encounter with Jesus that completely changed everything about me, nine years of age? I, I, I can't describe when that happened what, what my mind was about. It was like I didn't get up and go about and be a nine-year-old doing the regular things. I, I thought about him every day. I thought about, you know, this is phenomenal. I have this peace in me. I have, this, I have this clean feeling inside of me. did not know anything about justification by faith and any of the theological pillars on which I was basing that on. But it was an experience. Not everybody has the same experience. But it, it birthed in me a love for God, to love him. Here's the second question. Do you love the Word of God? Um, I, w- I wonder how many, what's the average person's reading of the Bible that's in church in America? Um, I-, I don't know if we did a survey here. How, what does the Bible mean to you? There's some people, there's some people that almost worship the book instead of the God who authored it. Um, You know, we've got children that go to public schools and say, well, you can't pray. They pray in public schools all the time, especially when there's a test. They're praying. Nobody can stop your son or daughter praying over their meal. It's, it's, It's one of the free speech things. But yet we want this kind of institutional thing to come in It's kind of like, B.H. Clendenin, when someone says, we need prayer in school, he says, why do you want prayer in schools when you don't even pray in your homes? You want a teacher to pray with your son or daughter, or are you praying with your son and daughter? Pretty good question, isn't it? That goes to meddling right there when people are asking you stuff like that. But do you love the Bible? Do you, do you desire to know it, to understand it? Here's the third question. Do you love living out and sharing the gospel? I love it when people tell, say, well, you know, evangelism is not my gifting. Does that mean you don't share the gospel? You just don't know how easy it is to share the gospel, right? There's people in this room that every month are sharing the gospel. I know at least one way they're sharing the gospel every month. They're sponsoring Hope Beyond Brokenness. That's going to homes that you don't have to knock on the door and say, can I share a message of hope? They're sponsoring books to go into those homes. I've done door-to-door evangelism, EE. We've done door-to-door evangelism here. With Titus Lee from, some of you might remember, way, way back from Chicago. Titus Lee, South Side Tabernacle, south, southern part of Chicago, a rough place. I've preached there before. Brenda and I and Jason and Kelly were the only light-skinned people in the whole place. But Spencer Jones had preached for me, and he says, I want you to preach for me, and and at Southside Tabernacle, when we got there, we stayed in a motel, and we were going to go to church that morning, I asked the lady, where is South Racine Street? And she looked at me, she says, do you know Chicago? I says, no, that's why I'm asking you for directions. Well, do you know what part of town that's in? I says, no. I'm, I'm, she says, why do you want to go there? She wouldn't even tell me where it was at. I said, I'm supposed to preach at church. okay. And so she gave me that. We went in there, and Titus Lee, Titus Lee, this, this is a great church in the southern part of Chicago. He came down here. and we went, we went to Alberta City. There was a place known that you can pick up pot and drugs, and we walked up to people, and, and he walked away and says, why did all those people say they were Christians? Is it because they've had some kind of association with church? He said, in Chicago, they'll just tell you, no, I'm not a Christian. If you died today, would you you go to hell? Yeah, I'd go there. He says, the South, what is it with the South? I says, it's just part of the culture here that if you score a touchdown and you point to heaven, you must be a Christian. That's easy. And yet, sharing the gospel, shouldn't we all be about sharing the gospel? It's not that hard. It's, it's really easy. How about when we converse with people and just kind of like talk to them about what do they want God to do in their lives? How, how, what are their needs? What can we pray for? Now, here's a, the, fifth, the fourth question is this. Do you love Christians? And then you say, well, of course I do. <laughs> That's a crazy question, is it? But think about this. Our brothers and sisters throughout the world are suffering. Does it matter to us? Does it matter to what? Do you, you realize, no matter what you hear about North Korea, you do realize that we have brothers and sisters in the faith in that country. And you must realize that it is the most dangerous nation on the planet to be a believer The people who track the persecution of Christians will say there's not even another nation close to it. Believers are persecuted on a regular basis and killed in North Korea. These are our brothers and sisters. And when we're we're not nominal Christians, when we're normal Christians, that matters to us. We want to pray for them. And the last thing is this. What about church? Obviously, you like being here. Cause you're here. I love church. I have a confession to make, though. I was thinking about this. We uh, we went to general council, and we were we were there. And the weekend that we were leaving to take a couple of days on vacation, we got up on a Sunday morning, and our travel and everything just didn't fit finding a church. So I'm confessing that we were driving down the highway instead of being in church, right? So anybody who wants to help counsel me, I'll be available for you to... But here's the thing. In four days, I heard nine sermons. And I missed Samuel Rodriguez on Monday night because we, we just couldn't get there like we wanted to, our flight, and and trying to get to the convention center. But I listened to Samuel Rodriguez. If you don't remember who he is, he is one of the the pastors who stood at the podium at the inauguration of President Trump and prayed. And he talked about when he was called, he was going down, he he pastors in California, a great pastor, and uh, he was called by someone on the transition team says, would you be interested? Would you agree to pray or have a part in in the inauguration? He says, I'll have to talk to my wife about it because he didn't want to, you know, get too political and all this. But when he was 14 years of age in a Hispanic church in Allentown, PA, a preacher was there and he prophesied over him as a 14-year-old, at some time in your life, you will lay hands on a president and you will pray over him. And his future wife was in that service. She was a teenager. And she heard that. And I don't know whether he had forgotten about it, but he didn't want to be political. So he says, I'll need to talk to my wife. And she looked at him and she says, You don't remember that you have prophesied over you that you would lay hands on a president and pray over him? So he called back. I told people this story a little bit this morning. He called back and he says, "Um, I'll agree, but I have to ask a couple questions. Are you going to monitor what I say and what I pray? Do I have to submit this ahead of time? And the guy interrupted him, whoever he was, interrupted him and says, Sir, you just do what the Spirit tells you to do. And so there he was. I've listened to his message on podcasts. So that's ten messages You know what that is for some people? That's 10 Sundays. So we could take a Sunday off. You're not going to make me feel bad about not going to church. Not that you try to make me feel bad about not being in church. But does the Bible shape our ethics, our morals, our way of life? But what is normal Christianity? Here's where I'm going to touch on this for a little bit. You want to know what normal Christianity is? I'm glad you ask. It starts with what you know, not what you do. It starts with what you know, not with what you do. And I'll qualify by this. What you do will be affected by what you know. And Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will affect what you do the truth will affect how you live your life it will make you free and one of the things it will make you free of is nominalism when you know the truth of Galatians 2.20 when you experience the message of 2.20 or 2 Corinthians 5.17 when you experience that, that truth in them It frees you from being ordinary or casual about your faith. I want to put a plug in for a book. Probably some of you, most of you probably have never read it, but you should. Before you die, you need to read it. The Normal Christian Life by Watchman Nee. And you can find it on PDF online. It's it's easy to access, a free PDF. There's no excuse. If you know how to use the Internet, you can read this book. The most profound, transforming book I've ever held in my hand outside the Bible. And I credit Dr. R. Paul Wood, who was teaching Romans at Southeastern Bible College, and I was a first-year student, had just transferred from Jack State, where I wanted to go into business and economics, and that was my double major. And God just pressed me that I needed to head to Bible college. And I did not go willingly. He was, he was really pressing me. I, wanted, I had something I wanted to do. But Dr. Wood said, uh, you, this is required reading. Outside of what we're going on in the class, I, you are required to read this book by Watchman Nee. This is not his given name. Uh, he, he's, he was born in China he died in China. He spent the latter years of his life, from what I understand, after Mao Zedong took over, he was imprisoned because he was a very vocal evangelical believer, had written a lot of books, and this is one of the books he wrote. This is in the early part of his book. And if you'll just, since a lot of you are probably not going to read it, I'm just going to read some of it to you. I, I wish I could just embarrass everybody in here to read it, but I know that's not going to happen. He says, God makes it quite clear in his word that he has only one answer to every human need, his son, Jesus Christ. In all of his dealings with us, he works by taking us out of the way and substituting Christ in our place. The son of God died instead of us for our forgiveness. He lives inside of us, instead of us for our deliverance. You remember what he says in Galatians 2.20? I am crucified with Christ. There's that connection with the substitution of Jesus. Yet not I live, but not I, but Christ in his resurrection life lives in me. And the life I now live is not an ordinary life. It's not a nominal life. The life I live now, I live by His faith, the faith of the Son of God who loved me and took my place, who gave Himself for me. Nie says we can speak of two substitutions, a substitute on the cross who secures our forgiveness and a substitute within who secures our victory. It will help us greatly and save us from much confusion if we constantly if we keep constantly before us this fact, that God will answer all our questions in one way and one way only by showing us more of His Son. God will always fill in what we don't know by revealing more and more of who His Son is. Well, remember, we're speaking of normal Christianity, a faith built around And through the life and work of Jesus Christ, we are Christ followers. I still hear that statement, born-again Christian. It's just you're born again or you're not born again. Here's the foundational teaching. He says this, and this is such a remarkable book. Here I I dove back into it, and and I tell you what's happened to me. I'm just going to have to read it again and dive through it and just soak it up. He says, we shall see that the blood deals with what we have done, whereas the cross deals with what we are. The blood takes care of the acts of sin, but the cross is to kill the power of sin's attraction in us. The cross was to mortify that bondage to sin that controlled us, Not just wiping away the acts of sin, but going deep into us and and slaying the bondage to sin. The blood is therefore not primarily for us, but it was for God. Think about that. The blood wasn't primarily for us. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why did he have to shed his blood? Blood not tainted with sin. It was for God. How so? I'll read you a passage in just a moment. Follow me. If I want to understand the value of the blood, I must accept God's valuation of it. And if I do not know something of the value set upon the blood by God, I shall never know what its value is for me. It is only as the estimate that God puts upon the blood of Christ is made known to me by his Holy Spirit that I come into the good of it myself and how and find how precious indeed the blood is to me. I I wanted to pull this out of uh, Isaiah 53, and I wish I had a, a slide made up of this, but I didn't make one. But Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, hundreds of years before Jesus would be that suffering servant, Isaiah prophesied one of the great prophecies. And toward the end of that prophecy, it reads like this, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased Jehovah to bruise his son. That's hard to fathom, isn't it? He put him to grief. When you will make his soul, not just his body, the the whole, who Jesus is was on the cross suffering, not just his body but his soul. When you will make his soul an offering for sin, The Lord will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And verse 11 says this, and he shall see the travail of his soul. The father will see the travail of his son's soul and shall be satisfied. The satisfaction that Jesus would do the only way that we could be satisfied would do that, that would be the only way we could be saved. It satisfies the Father. You know, we we look in things as as moments. The moment he was arrested, the moment he was tortured, the moment he was impaled on the cross with nails, the moment that he he breathed his last breath. We, We could follow those moments, but the Father saw the whole span of all of that And that three days later, the book of Romans begins with Paul saying and writing that God had approved Jesus as his son by raising him from the dead. The resurrection was God saying, I approve of what happened three days earlier. I approve and I give blessing to that so that you and I could know him in an intimate, personal way. Normal Christianity is a faith walk that stands in awe of the sacrifice of Christ, knowing that one cannot add or take away regardless of the level of what you're involved in. We cannot love enough. We cannot give enough. We cannot serve enough. We cannot shout enough, cry enough, pray enough, share what we have enough, because he's done everything that we've needed. Nothing, we can't add anything to it. He says, well, what's the purpose of being involved in the ministry? It's because we get to be involved in the ministry. It's because he's allowed us to have a part. Who would not want to taste and have this wonderful salvation and not be in the middle of it? Put me right in the middle of it. Radically transforming by his regenerative power. Here's some of the headings in in the the normal Christian life. Abiding in him. As in Adam, so in Christ. Adam's choice, the reason for the cross. The absolute lordship of Christ. How's that? The absolute. Do you ever hear the word totality over the last several days? Totality. How about the absolute lordship of Jesus? That totality, I think, lasted about five minutes. The absolute lordship of Jesus is eternal. How about a gate and a path? The difference between revelation, which is objective, and experience, which is subjective, and how the two come together. I'm telling you, Watchman Nee takes you through the book of Romans, And if your response, the first time you go through it, is like me sitting in that classroom after I finish reading and I come to the conclusion, have I been in church all my life and have never read this book? Mm. And the Bible I still have, the Zondervan Mark reference Bible that I had at Southeastern Bible College, my dad gave it to me because his eyes were starting to need glasses and the print was like minuscule. And he said, I can't read this anymore. I want you to have it. And that's the Bible I had in my possession. I still have it in in my office. The covers loose from it. But you can you can almost hold it in your hand and let it fall open and it's gonna fall in Romans. The pages have moisture from my or, or not the oil of my hand, my thumb, colored those pages. It threw it's You know, someone said, well, Romans is your favorite. I just think Romans is the strategic book we need to understand who we are and what we should be about. Here's a normal Christian life in some words. And if the musicians will come, praise team will come. Normal Christian life. Hunger. Hunger. Thirst. How about prayer? How about prayer? How about prayer? Where, where in the world did we get that prayer is just private? I guess Jesus said, go into your prayer closet. And you need, to get, you need to have a prayer closet. But he prayed for a lot of people in public, too. Praying for each other. Having people pray for you. Two people I visited in the hospital over the course of my pastoring here, And uh, one of them was Jewel Miles and one of them was W.R. White. Every time I visited them, whether they were in a, at home or in the hospital, and I would pray with them. <laughs> well, I, I'll take that back. Bob Key was like that when I was at his home. They would... Maybe they knew the pastor needed prayer as much as they did. They would hold on to my hand and then start praying for me. You know, I, I walked away many times saying, they did a lot more for me than I think I did for them. Who doesn't want someone praying for them? Who doesn't want someone to hear their name being called. Bob would do that. As sick as he was at home, I'd finish praying for him and he'd pray and he'd just pray over me. Can I tell you, I think prayer ought to be normal. Shouldn't that be normal? So, well, Pastor, I'm not comfortable doing that. Well, do it anyway. Just because we all need to. How about purpose and meaning and mission in life? Would you stand with me?